Hello and welcome to another episode of The Album Years with myself, Stephen Wilson, and my co-host, Mr. Timothy Bones. Hello, Tim. Hello. So today, Tim, it's another cracker of a year, isn't it? 1976. Um, and again, we were kind of like spoilt for choice with this year, weren't we, in terms of amazing albums we could have talked about? Absolutely. And it's odd because obviously this year is seen... It's quite a crucial year, really, quite an important year in the history of pop and rock, as it was the one that kind of ushered in punk and preceded the whole kind of new wave revolution. And um, yeah, one of the interesting things is that kind of looking at the year is how a little like some of the other years we've dealt with, like 1973 and so on, almost every genre was um, on incredible productive form. And isn't it interesting also that we th- we think of, I guess we think of now retrospectively as the 76, 78 period as the kind of heyday of punk. It's the brushing away of the old garden, the introduction of this completely new music and, and more aggressive and more down to earth and more back to the roots kind of thing. But if you actually look at the really big albums of that period, we're talking about things like Breakfast in America by Supertramp. We're talking about Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell, aren't we? We're talking about mm. Jeff Wayne's War of the Worlds. I mean, these albums, these are, the, these are the children of the sort of great progressive rock here, aren't they? These aren't the children of punk rock at all. Absolutely. I mean, obviously, Andrew Lloyd Webber's Variations, yeah, right. we did with Coliseum 2, was another huge one around this time. And I think it is kind of interesting that, you know, I always think with, with music that sometimes, you know, action breeds reaction. And in some ways, you've always got opposites coexisting. And so in the time when music was supposedly being simplified, I think with a lot of pop music and a lot of album rock music, it was actually getting more pompous, more complicated. And, you know, thinking of these years, it was actually the heyday of jazz rock as much as anything else. But it was also a time, wasn't it, when the sort of the influence of progressive rock had morphed into something a little bit more uh, accessible and mainstream. So those albums I just mentioned there, obviously they have they have a strong legacy of conceptual rock music, but at the same time, they're much more accessible and they're much more commercial, aren't they? I mean, you know, um, something like ELO's Out of the Blue, which was another massive record, you know, mm. not this year, but the following year. And another massive record. I mean, this is a band that obviously come through that era of experimental you know progressive rock but they're they're now kind of making a very sort of radio friendly version of it which is crossing over to a massive massive audience isn't it absolutely although i think in some cases it isn't really that the bands are compromising because you know i still think that with bands like elo and genesis some of their most commercial work is amongst their best work and in some ways it's it's the bands getting better at their craft and maybe that no longer are they the eccentric novelty. They've been embraced by the mainstream. So you've got a much wider audience that is receptive to what they've got to offer. So let's start actually by talking about, um, the, because there were so many albums to talk about this year, we've kind of grouped them again, like we did, I think, in one of the previous episodes. Um, so let's talk about first the, the sort of so-called art rock scene. Now we talk about a kind of fusion of the ideals of conceptual rock music and a more kind of commercial song-oriented bent. And th- this is kind of what we're talking about here in a way, isn't it? When we uh, When we talk about art rock. So we have albums like... Electric Light Orchestra's A New World Record. We have Bebop Deluxe, Sunburst Finish. We have Queen's A Day at the Races. We have Bowie's Station to Station, a very important record in, in his kind of career. But I think the one that we want to focus on, I think we both agreed that this is a band we really want to talk about because they are, in a sense, 
uh, eternally underrated, even though they sold a lot of records and, you know, made some mm. amazing and have a lot of respect because they never seem to fit into anything particularly. Um, they kind of get overlooked, don't they? And we're talking about 10 CC here. And, and this is How Dare You from 1976, which for me has the the quintessential 10cc track on it, uh, which is not I'm Not In Love. It's a track called I'm Mandy Fly Me. Yeah, which is an amazingly ambitious single. And and this kind of highlights one of the other things about 1976, that there were singles being released that were as ambitious as albums in terms of their detail, their scope, um, the way in which they would change multiple times. You know, you've got music by John Miles, um, even Hotel California, um, Year of the Cat, some huge hits that were tremendous in their scope and and Mandy Flyme was one of those that obviously has multiple sections and time changes yet is incredibly accessible and grand it's almost like the fulfillment of the promise of heroes and villains or good vibrations the sort of mid to late 60s beach boys hits is there a sense also that maybe some of these artists have been bolstered by the massive success of Bohemian Rhapsody the year before? I mean, I don't know if that that works chronologically because maybe 10CC had already finished this album before that was even a hit. But it seems that, you know, the success of Bohemian Rhapsody kind of ushers in uh, more kind of songs and of a similar nature, almost like this patch. You know, you're right. This is the, these, these songs are like the children in, in a way of good vibrations or a day in the life in the sense that they move through different moods, different scenes. It's almost like that kind of cinema. Mm approach to making a song that doesn't obey the, the usual kind of verse, chorus, middle eight, you know, rules. Um, yeah. And Bohemian Rhapsody is such a massive, massive success, isn't it? That it must have almost encouraged, you know, a band like 10CC who, who had ambitions of their own to attempt their own kind of equivalent of that. And, and I'm Mandy Fly Me really is that, isn't it? I mean, just the production, in the, I mean, just ignoring the kind of structural issue, this the production in this song, and that the whole album is just... It's so inspiring for me as someone who's very interested in production. Play I'm Mandy Fly Me and just sort of, you know, obsess about all the little details going on, like the the backward zither and the, you know, the, the sound of those acoustic mm. guitars in the middle. Uh, just so many great things to latch onto from a production point of view. Yeah, well, I mean, art for art's sake is another example, because mm. that's quite an epic in its own right in the beginning. Yeah, the it. atmospheric beginning to that is stunning. Yeah. Um, and that has a fantastic groove. And so, yeah, there's great melody, great hook, great groove, but it's all incredibly detailed, clever, beautifully mapped out. Um, and one of the other things about this album was that it was quite emotional. I think one of the things that um, always gets lost in this with a lot of English art rock in particular is that people see it as being quite cold, quite reserved or quite clever for the sake of being clever. And I've never really seen this. And I think it was, you know, whether it's Peter Gabriel's Genesis, 10CC, Kate Bush, Roxy Music. I think in some ways they kind of create characterizations or masks in which really strong emotions can come through. So I think that with some of their stories, you know, and this album for me, Don't Hang Up, is a great Mm. example of something that's incredibly touching and very human, that, you know, through the humour, through the masks, through the storytelling, it's actually quite vulnerable. So lest we forget that the 1976 or this era that's about to to come in uh, isn't just about punk, it's also about... 
um, the you know disco music and disco is going to become a massive, massive, massive thing for the next few years. Uh, perhaps, obviously, a much more commercially successful uh, you know genre than than punk ever was. Although disco has largely been forgotten, whereas punk is still seen as being something that was very kind of you know revolutionary and very key to the future of music. But disco was dominant, wasn't it? I mean, the following year you had Saturday Night Fever, but it's already beginning to to make mm. its presence felt and we have some great i mean some of these you might almost call pre-disco records um funkadelic made two records this year and there was a parliament record too uh santana's amigos has a strong element of, of disco and i know that you and i both feel that santana amigos is a very underrated santana i mean for me it has my favorite santana track of all on it in dance mm-hmm. sister dance and one of the things we're going to talk about now, this is the album you want to talk about from this scene, uh, but it has something in common with Santana's, Santana's Amigos, which is the use of the Selena string synth mm-hmm. sound, which I know we're both suckers for this sound. <laughs> um, and it's all over the uh, Amigos sound by Santana. And it's all over the album that you want to talk about, which is Roy Ayers, Everybody Loves the Sunshine. Now, this is an album you've picked, Tim. So, so why have you picked this album particularly? Well, really, I've picked it for the title track. Um, there are good tracks on this album and it has a nice flow and a bit like the uh, Lonnie Liston Smith album uh, Reflections of a Golden Dream from the same period it sort of alternates between quite wistful almost meditative pieces and then full-on funk workouts and uh, the title track for this I think is really quite interesting in that in this year, it's difficult to find things that speak of the disquiet. You know, if you think of the sort of political disquiet of the mid-70s and late-70s and, if you like, this kind of preamble uh, to punk. But this track is bizarre in that it has an incredibly optimistic lyric, an incredibly optimistic groove. But there's a real aura of decadence and melancholy where you're kind of thinking that the party isn't what it's been made out to be. And that there's a real sense of disillusionment, despite the seeming optimism of the lyrics. And I always kind of connect this with um, Good Times by Chic, which I also think has this kind of sense that somebody's walking out of this party. They're supposed to be happy. And actually what you can see is the cocaine dribbling down their nose and tears in their eyes. Now, interestingly, we talk about this, you know, this this aspect of music apparently being very positive and, and very sort of feel good, but having a kind of melancholic undercurrent. And we're also talking about the disco and ABBA this year made Arrival, which for me is probably their greatest album. And the most famous song on this record is their take on disco, Dancing Queen. But they're also a band, aren't they? And I think Dancing Queen's no exception that somehow... And I'm not even sure they're aware of it sometimes. Somehow there's always this slight feeling of melancholy and regret and nostalgia about even their most kind of positive songs. I think with me, when I hear Dancing Queen, it's kind of, it's all in her imagination. She's kind of imagining herself as this, you know, dancing queen on the dance floor, blowing everyone away, but it's not real. And I don't know, I'm yeah, kind of, absolutely. I, I guess I'm kind of projecting this in a way, but that's the way it kind of comes across to me. I, I think it, you're it, right. It's, it's somebody. Yeah. Yeah. It's somebody who's actually either contemplating suicide in Stockholm 
or dreaming that they're on the dance floor. It's there is something there. But this um, album, I agree. But this album is 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 stunning for me. I mean, this is this is ABBA making their first album in the sense that there's no filler on this record. I mean, every track on this uh, on this album could have been a hit single, and it's it's very diverse. I mean, you've got everything from the you know the slightly prog rock instrumental the title track to to very sort of um you know melancholic songs about divorce like knowing me knowing you to the the feel-good songs like dancing queen and when i kiss the teacher but they're all brilliant um it's it's an album experience and this is a band that were at the mo at the time i guess dismissed largely by the you know the so-called cognoscenti the sort of intellectual album buying public wouldn't have taken a band like abba seriously well there's a real sophistication in the production and the playing as well. I mean, I think it's interesting you talk about the instrumental, which obviously was covered by Mike Oldfield. And um, I think there is a kind of um, intricacy in the arrangements that puts it up with the best of the the British art rock and art pop bands, 10CC, ELO and so on. Yeah, you know, very underrated. And, and you're right. I think that what made it work even at the time when I was 12 is that there was a feeling that it speaks to something that isn't quite right. Mm. And, you know, I do like this idea of, you know, Dancing Queen, in a sense, almost being like an Alan Bennett talking heads play. That this is somebody talking themselves up on screen as being extraordinarily happy, but we can see the melancholy in the soul. It's all a dream, yeah. So also this year, we, we we do have, you know, arguably the most famous, along with the Bee Gees, the most famous disco artist of all, Donna Summer. Now, there's something about this year. A lot of great artists are making not one great record, but making two great records. We've already mentioned that Funkadelic made two records this year. Donna Summer made two terrific records this year, A Love Trilogy and Four Seasons of Love. And again, there's something about these records that has the influence of conceptual rock music and progressive rock music to, to both these records. Four Seasons of Love mm. is a concept album, four 10-minute pieces, each dedicated to a season. A Love Trilogy has a sidelong piece on it, which which moves through many, many different sort of, you know, like dynamics. Also, Marvin Gaye released I Want You, which is another kind of bittersweet, you know, record, I think, for him, isn't it? Um, so- and also quite conceptual in the sense that the themes are carried on throughout the album. Um, I mean, yeah, the Donna Summer albums, um, Four Seasons of Love is probably my favourite of the two. And that's mainly because there's a lot more synthesizer on it. And um, the synth on this slightly reminds me of a rainbow in curved air Terry Riley. You know, there's something going on outside of the disco. And it's what I quite like about this, that you've almost got this kind of relentlessness that you could argue has something of the kind of metronomic kraut rock quality. You've got the concept that's running through it, but there are some really nice um, synth ideas on it that kind of link the pieces on the album. It seems like everyone that's making music at this point seems to have taken something from the the great era of experimental pop and progressive rock uh, for, you know, the say the sort of late 60s, early 70s. Um, it's kind of coming through in a lot of music and, and, and obviously punk was pretty much about removing that completely, wasn't it? But right at this mm. moment, it's, it's everywhere, isn't it? Um, and in fact, I want to talk uh, uh, now about progressive rock itself because that's kind of the elephant in the room at the moment, this, this, the influence progressive rock has had. And again, you know, you kind of touched on this uh, a few moments ago that in a year when supposedly all of this stuff was being swept aside, a lot of these bands were arguably making uh, some of their strongest music and some of their most 
quote unquote ridiculous music. Uh, and, I, and I use that in a positive way, you know, in a sense of reaching for something really grand and really bold. And so this year, in, the, in terms of progressive rock, we have... Um, you know, another band that made two great albums this year, our, our friend Mr. Hamill, uh, with his band Van de Graaff Generator, made two terrific records this year, Still Life and World Record. Uh, Camel, Moon Madness, which I think a lot of people would hold up as their, as their greatest record, came mm-hmm. at a time when apparently no one should have been making that kind of music. Uh, Gentle Giants, Interview, Caravan, Blind Doggets and Dunstans, Jethro Tull's Too Old to Rock and Roll. What's interesting is I do see a lot more of these bands are perhaps trying to make their sound a little bit more accessible. It's difficult to know whether, in a sense, because some of these bands obviously uh, spent periods becoming more experimental and getting back to their own roots. And their own roots were often sort of Beatles pop or Motown. Um, Genesis being a great example of this, because they released two albums this year, which I think are amongst their best. Incredibly beautiful, not remotely compromised, yet very accessible. Um, And I think that's because they're allowing perhaps some of their roots influences to come through and and perhaps it's a reaction against Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. I mean, it's interesting again about 1976 because there are so many beautiful sounding albums, you know, whether it's Al Stewart, Genesis, Donna Summer, these albums sound lush. There are some beautiful sounding records here. Also, more in this category, Barclay James Harvest, October on Alan Parsons Project released their first album, Tales of Mystery and Imagination. Um... But um, the, 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 I think the thing, the thing that all these records have in common is that they're all crossing over slightly more to a pop aesthetic, but none of them had hits on, did they? I think that's going to come. But at this moment, these bands are, they're moving slightly more towards a pop sound, but none of them are actually crossing over into the, into the pop charts yet, are they? Well, they're getting to that stage where I think it's, it's probably 1978, really. And, um, and I remember seeing these when they were on television at the time, but Nationwide, if you remember that. I do, yes, yeah would have an hour-long special on Genesis in 1978, an hour-long special in Kate Bush. And this was effectively just the news programme, the national news programme. And I think at that stage, the artists really have crossed over. And, and if you haven't seen that Nationwide on Genesis, it's interesting because it actually begins with, I think, probably Frank Boff saying, you may not have heard of Genesis, but I'll tell you, your children have. Isn't it, isn't it fair to say that what you would probably have the presenter saying now would be, you may not have heard of Genesis, but your granddad has. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. You know, Frank Boff, if he's alive, would say that now. Yeah. So, but we're talking about progressive rock. I want to pick actually one album to talk about specifically from this bunch, which is arguably the most ludicrous, the most pompous in the best possible sense of the word of all of them. Uh, this is a guy that is completely, apparently, in a bubble of insanity, uh, uh, but making a beautiful, beautiful record, and that is John Anderson. And it's an absolutely ridiculous record that goes by the name of Elias of Sun Hillow, but I love it because it is, it could be none more progressive rock, could it? Except it doesn't have the tricky time signature aspect. I mean, I agree with you. It's my idea of progressive in the sense that he is searching for something special um he is experimenting wildly you know this reminds me in a way of the first program 1980 when we were discussing common one by von morrison which led to spirit of eden by mark hollis this in a way is in a similar space it's somebody creating their own sound world with no regard to anything else 
It's incredibly beautiful. It's incredibly ambitious. It could be no one other than Anderson. There's all sorts of things from kind of African chants to proto-ambient. I, th- I think you're right. I think there is a sense that this this is progressive rock without the kind of showmanship element. Um, it's mm. much more of an experiment in texture. And as you pointed out, he's experimenting with like percussion and particularly a lot of vocal overdubs, as you would expect from, from someone like John Anderson. But the notion of it is none more progressive, isn't it? The artwork, the concept, which I don't... Yeah. I don't begin to understand or even want to understand. Uh, but th- there's something about it that's just uh, completely deluded in the best possible sense of the word, um, just creating a whole musical universe of his own. And, and I just find it's a magical and, and beautiful, a beautiful thing to listen to. Uh, and, I, and I love him for making this record, you know, absolutely. Um, so let, let's move on now to... Um, Something else that was that was kind of going on at the time, which was that a lot of the singer-songwriters that had come out of the late 60s, early 70s were also reaching kind of peaks in a way. Bob Dylan's Desire came out this year. Um, Al Stewart's Year of the Cat, which you mentioned, which, you know, Al Stewart had been around for 10 years by this point. But Year of the Cat became his belated, his big breakthrough record, didn't it? Um, it and, did, yeah. Uh, Tom Waits' Small Change, one of my favourite Tom Waits albums, Bill, Billy Joel's tr- Turnstiles. Um, and... Arguably the greatest singer-songwriter of them all. Sorry, Bob Dylan fans, but arguably the <laughs> the greatest singer-songwriter of them all, in my opinion, Joni Mitchell made Hajira, um, which is um, such a sublime record. And it's kind of a breakthrough record for her because in a way, this is where the influence of jazz music on her on her oeuvre, if you like, really gels for me. Um, mm. you, you've got Jaco Pastorius on bass here in, in the context of a relatively stripped down sound, but she's also adopted, I think, I believe for the first time, the open tunings, which means she's working with alternative guitar tunings and she's coming up with all these very strange, harmonically strange chord voicings. And it just seems to take her to a whole nother level of, of her artistry. I don't know if you agree with me, Tim. This is this is for me is her greatest record, Hijira. It's difficult because there are so many albums in her catalogue that are brilliant, and so many that I could choose as favourite albums True. of True. all time, let alone favourite albums of Johnny Mitchell. And um, you know, she was obviously flirting with jazz on Court and Spark and, and Hissing of Summer Lawns, and it's always. Um, difficult for me to choose between Hissing of Summer Lawns, which has much more experimental and eclectic songs, and Hijira, which is almost like one long tone poem. In some ways, it's kind of her almost doing the Bob Dylan in the sense that she's just got this travelogue narrative that seems to last a whole album and often doesn't change very much while changing constantly because of the nature of the playing, you know, especially... Pistorius, who is brilliant on this album. You know, it was the year of Pistorius because, of course, it's his first album with Weather Report this year, Black Market, which is a great record. It's his um, solo album, which does extraordinarily well. And then you've also got him working with Pat Metheny, I think, this year. So, um, you know, what tremendous player. And, And in some ways, it's the involvement of people like Pastorius that make his year so wondrous. I mean, partly it's the lyrics, partly it's the relentlessness, but it's the fact that it's kind of hypnotic, but is subtly changing all the time. And um, and again, you wonder about this thing you were talking about, something being in the air. And next year, of course, she's going to do Don Juan's Reckless Daughter. And that has a sidelong track. You know, once more, this is as epic and experimental as any 
progressive band are going to get. So um, we talked about jazz. Let, let's so let's talk about. I mean, you kind of already alluded to some of the records that came out this year from that scene, the Lonnie Liston Smith record, um, and you also mentioned the the uh, the Weather Report record, Black Market. Um, there's also some other great jazz records this year. There's Jeff Beck's Wired. Um, there's Brand X's first record, Un- Unorthodox Behaviour, with a very sort of peculiarly English take on on fusion. Um, Zappa's Zuta Law, arguably a, an album of affinity to, to jazz rock. Um, but the one I want to talk about actually is um, is a very French take on jazz rock. One of the most instantly recognisable and distinctive sounds in rock music is that of Magma. And this year they made their album Udu Voodoo, which it's not necessarily one of their best albums, but for me it has their best ever track on it, which conveniently takes up the whole side of a record, which is uh, Di Futura. Um, now, how can, you de- how can you describe Magma to someone that's never heard Magma, Tim? How do you even go about doing that? It's very, very difficult because uh, part of it as well is that you try and find out what Magma is and so you then find out more about Christian Vander's obsessions with the spiritual jazz of Coltrane and um, Albert Isla and so on and then you also hear that he was a huge Otis Redding fan and obviously an opera buff but it's extraordinary you know if it, when you're hearing this for the first time it's it's closest to King Crimson and Van de Graaff Generator in the way in which it constantly rhythmically shifts and in the way in which it uses dissonance and I think that, you know, when I first heard them, that was kind of my reference point. But it goes well beyond that because you can hear all sorts of peculiar soul reference points and operatic reference points in, in the vocal. And um, and De Futura has to be one of the greatest pieces they've ever done. You know, it's sort of 17 minutes of relentless riffing that is extremely engaging. But I think one of the other things that's, that that it has in common with some of those other artists you mentioned is the, and particularly this track Di Futura, is the inc- this increasing sense of uh, abandon, and it's actually created by the fact that the tempo is constantly increasing. It's this sense of rocketing towards a cliff edge, uh, being unable to stop the momentum. And it just sweeps you along with it, carries you along this constant sense of the track getting faster and faster and faster and faster as it moves to almost this orgiastic peak, this kind of fury. Mm. Um, And you can, you know, put that together with this kind of these, as you said, the, the elements you've mentioned, the kind of operatic elements, the jazz rock elements, and also the fuzz bass. Now, I know we're both suckers for a bit of fuzz bass, aren't we? You know, yeah, I suppose King Crimson Starless gives an idea of the effect that certainly De Futura has, but there are also very haunting and lyrical moments um, in Magma's work. I think, you know, you can have the the echoed flutes, the sort of wafting, wordless voices, and so they can produce something as beautiful and otherworldly as Popolver as well. You know, there's there's a lot of things going on. The otherworldly aspect partly is because you don't the, the lyrics are all in this made up language. So you're not <laughs> Yeah, you, that you, does help. You yeah. don't you don't have that element to kind of keep it earthbound, do you? It's it's already kind of alien. It already has an alien kind sure. of aspect to it, yeah. So, uh, yeah, so Jazz Rock, uh, also Gong Shamal album this year uh, this year came out. I, I love that record. Um uh, so um Okay, let, let's talk about, again, let's shift into another genre completely. This is a year, this is very interesting. This is a year that electronic music reached 
the mainstream in in a very big way. Now, um, to put this in context, for years there have been great electronic bands making some great electronic music. Tangerine Dream have been around for years. They've made, uh, they also made a great album this year, Stratosphere. Klaus Schultz has been around for years. He made an album called Moon Dawn this year. Vangelis has been around for years. He made Albedo 0.39 this year. But none of them had done what this guy did. The new kid on the block uh, came out with an album which actually had a massive hit single on it and became arguably the biggest selling electronic album at that time. And that was Jean-Michel Jarre, who released Oxygen this year. Um, and it's something about this album, isn't it, that, that you kind of hear it and you understand why it did cross over to the mainstream. It has, mm. in, in the melodies, in the textures, in the sonic aspects of the record, it's something much more inviting, much more accessible, isn't it, than perhaps some of these other artists had managed to achieve until that point. Yeah, though it's as uncompromising. You know, it was interesting to me because when you um, introduced me to the Morton Subotnik, I could hear elements that Jean-Michel Jarre had taken this, especially uh, the use of electronic sounds as the basis for the rhythms. Um, So I think it's a very uncompromising album. And of course, he created this pretty much on his own in his fairly makeshift home studio. So it was a real DIY mm. effort. So I'm not quite sure he sort of had global domination on his mind when he was doing it. And I'm sometimes, sure not. A, yeah. You know, a lot of the best music and a lot of the best pop music is created accidentally or through just sheer love of making noise and making melody. And um, yeah, you know, it, it's an exciting album. I kind of compare to... Tubular Bells in some ways, in the sense that it was somebody who'd presumably been brewing these ideas for several years, finally managed to bring it to fruition in a way that they were satisfied with. And like Tubular Bells, it has central themes that are tremendously inviting and accessible and aren't going to frighten your grandmother. I mean, this is the electronic album that my dad bought. You know, this is, you can't really understate this. Electronic music until this point had been not invisible, but it had been pretty low key in terms of the mainstream pop charts, isn't it? I mean, occasionally you would get a novelty, a novelty song like Popcorn or something. Mm. And you would hear Brian Eno synthesizer on a Roxy Music single, but it was used in a very, used in a very different way. It wasn't used as part of the compositional framework. Here, this is electronic music and it's suddenly in the mainstream. Um, well, I suppose I was going to say there's one precedent in a way, I mean, not Tangerine Dream, but possibly even Tomita or Tomita, however one pronounces it. Didn't have hit singles, though. Didn't have hit singles. Number one in Tanzania, I think. Well, actually, see, you've made a bit of an error there because Tomita himself, <laughs> he was the Japanese imp- impersonator of Walter Carlos ah. because Walter Carlos was a guy that had a synthesizer and basically wrote, uh, recorded few Bach music, but on the synthesizer. Yeah, yeah. And Tomita took that. I, I'm Clockwork Orange. But basically he was taking the Walter Carlos thing. But again, they didn't have hit singles. They might have had a sort of album audience. But what, what's interesting about Jean-Michel Jarre and Oxygen is this was a big hit single. Um, yeah, as you're saying, it reached my dad. You know, my dad bought Oxygen okay. Part 4. Yeah. But he also had... To meet her, snowflakes are falling. Right, okay. Terrible error there, by the way. Snowflakes so, are dancing. Snowflakes are dancing. Terrible what error. What did I say? T- falling. Terrible error. It's very interesting that what's also going on this year, apart from electronic music, apart from singer-songwriter music and disco music and proto-punk music, is that the heavy rock bands of the 70s are also 
doing some new things in 1976. So we have um, Black Sabbath, but we've also got Thin Lizzy, another band making two albums this year, both terrific records, Jailbreak and Johnny the Fox both came out in 1976. We've got Blue Oyster Cult making Agents of Fortune. We've got Rush making 2112, which is kind of their, their, their big breakthrough record. But the album I want to talk about is by the most famous heavy rock band, which is Led Zeppelin. But I think this album they made this year arguably is very underrated. Now, if it's possible to say that a Led Zeppelin album is underrated, well, I'm, I'm saying I'm saying this record is underrated. Presence, my favourite Led Zeppelin record, and I believe it's your favourite Led Zeppelin record too, right? I think it possibly is, yeah. I mean, along with um, Houses of the Holy, but obviously Houses of the Holy is quite disconnected, is, is very eclectic and doesn't hold together. I mean, Presence is the one Led Zeppelin album that weirdly I tie it in with his era, in that it's an album with a tremendous sense of focus and a very distinctive sound that runs throughout it. And as an album, it's very, very intense. It has quite a harsh soundscape. Again, this, like Van de Graaff Generator, like Magma, like Lou Reed, Patti Smith isn't the beautiful sounding album that a lot of albums are during this era. There's a real edge and a crunch to it. And it's a very guitar dominated album. It lacks the Yeah, I mean, I was going to say, yeah, this is, this is Jimmy's favourite album too. And I believe it's his favourite album because it's very much his baby. John Paul Jones is barely on this record. There are no keyboards. Mm. And, and, and sorry to interrupt you, but yes, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is, this is very much Jimmy Page's record. Yeah, and and maybe that's one of the things that accounts for its lack of popularity. I can only think of two things, really. Um, that physical graffiti seemed to be seen as the definitive Zeppelin statement. I mean, for me, it's a typical double album of that period in that I'd probably have an album's worth of me it. Too. It'd be one of me too, yeah. Zeppelin's greatest. Yeah. You know, Cashmere is undoubtedly one of the greatest things they've ever done. It's a, there's astonishing music on it, but it always struck me as being at least a side and a half too long. Yeah, I agree. Whereas this is perfect yeah. throughout, from start to finish. It does not exhaust yeah. your patience. So I think on, on one level, it was perhaps the era it came out in because I think it was possibly later '76 when. Punk had just about made its first impact on the scene. And I think also it came after what was seen as this epic definitive um, statement. You know, a bit like we were saying with uh, with the Beach Boys, that Smiley Smile is a great album in itself, but it came after Sgt. Pepper's. It came after quite a number of major works, including their own pet sounds, and perhaps seemed a bit small. Um, so I'm not sure. And... and, and and also because, of course, the John Paul Jones element, which was often the sweetener, the, the clavinet, the mellotron, the strings, um, that's really not on this album at all. Mm. Um, but I think to make up for that, we have we have some extraordinary layered guitar work here. I mean, I, I don't think there's another Led Zeppelin record where there are so many different interlocking layered parts in the guitar department. If you listen to a track like Achilles Last Stand, there's so many sort of lines going on, counterpoint lines. Sure. And I just think Jimmy Page is an absolute peak here. I also think Bonham is at an absolute peak here. And I think Roger, Robert Plant is at a peak here, although he was yeah, yeah. he was singing most of this record from a wheelchair, I think. He'd had, a, he'd had a very bad car accident and he was having to do most of the singing sitting down. But there's also something about this record that I think is worth pointing out is that this is the record where Led Zeppelin absolutely nail, I think, the funk elements to their sound. Now, they kind of had, they'd kind of always had this groove element. They'd almost have pastiches 
pages of funk tracks on previous albums. I think of that track on uh, Has of the Holy. What, what is it called now? The sort of James Brown pastiche one. I've forgotten the title of it. The Crunch. Oh, the yeah, Crunch, yeah. yeah. The crunch. yeah, yeah. But here, there is just pure malevolent groove. I mean, I don't know how else to put it. It just feels badass. Do you know what I mean? Um, tracks, tracks like, um, you know, for your life and nobody's fault, but mine Bonham is just so in the groove and everyone is just so in that groove. And I can hear the influence to come on bands like red hot chili peppers, for example. I think you're right. And, and it's interesting, you know, because as, as you say, it's one of Plant's best albums and he sounds so emotionally committed and desperate at times, but there's tremendous um, input from all of them on this. And um, in some ways, it reminds me as well of animals in that it gives the lie to this idea that Led Zeppelin were flabby. Um, in that there's a muscular sound to this in the way that there's a muscular, almost punkish sound to animals that in some ways is far more bitter, aggressive. And this goes for Magma and Van de Graaff as well than a lot of what Chelsea are going to do at that time. Um, it's interesting. We, you know, we talk about punk and you've already mentioned Lou Reed and Patti Smith and they both made records this year, not their best records. Um, it has to be said, but the Lou Reed made Coney Island Baby, Patti Smith made Radio Ethiopia. The first Ramones record came out this year. And I've always struggled a bit with the Ramones for exactly that reason, that I almost find it too reductive, yeah. too simplistic. I mean, Patti Smith album... Radio Ethiopia has some great stuff on it. And Coney Island Baby, the title track on Lou Reed's album, is well worth mm -hmm. hearing. You know, it's a beautiful, epic piece. It almost fits into the tracks I was talking about earlier, the Hotel California's, the music, in that this is Reed stretching himself. And it has a great payoff line at the end. This is also, you know, we, we've talked already a lot about how... Um, the the kind of quality of the work belies the reputation that this era has, that actually this was just as creative as the early 70s had been for a lot of these artists. Mm. Even with punk just around the corner, some of these artists were making some of their most radical radical and, and ambitious statements. And it's no exception if you look at the world of very much the, the mainstream pop artists, or at least the cool ones. So um, Stevie Wonder, Songs in the Key of Life, double album with a bonus seven inch, just brimming with ideas and everything kind of thrown into that record also. Um, but the one artist I want to talk about that also made a double album this year that I don't think people really talk about this record enough. I think it's for me one of his, one of his best records and it's Elton John and his double album, Blue Moves, which again, a bit like Songs in the Key of Life for Stevie Wonder, it's all over the shop. I mean, it's got everything from beautiful orchestrated piano ballads to gospel music to jazz, almost like, um, you know, torch songs to, to progressive rock instrumentals to disco, bite your lip, get up and dance. He's got his disco song on this record too. Um, and I don't think people listen to this record, talk about this record enough. And again, I guess I wonder if it's a bit what you were saying about Led Zeppelin. It was just the timing of this record mm. that if it had come out say three or four years earlier when he was kind of at his commercial peak people would have listened more closely to it um but i certainly think in retrospect it's a record that people really should go back and, and appreciate for what it is well i think you're right i mean one of the interesting things that links this and the stevie wonder in particular is that they're artists at the peak of their commercial power and at the peak of their abilities and they are just doing anything they like brilliantly. I mean, the one thing that was interesting to me is listening to the instrumental on, I think it's Contusion. I might be wrong on that, on the Stevie Wonder. The Fusion one. Songs in the Key of Life. 
um, the fusion Pure track fusion. and listening, yeah, yeah. yeah, listening to the instrumentals on um, Elton John is actually they could have been brilliant jazz rock artists. They could have been mm. brilliant progressive rock artists. Mm. They could have been brilliant balladeers, brilliant funketeers, mm. and so on. Disco mavericks, and um, there is so much talent on display willfully on these albums mm. and uh, and blue moves. I, I agree. You know, it's kind of um, Elton unleashed, if you like. I mean, it's it's difficult to to talk about Blue Moves without without comparing it to his other, you know, classic double album from five years five years earlier. No, less than that. Three by Yellow Bre- Three years earlier, yeah. Which of course is a massive record. And but to me, Blue Moves is right up there with that record. It's just as ambitious, just as eclectic. And you have to obviously, obviously, obviously when you talk about it, John, you always have to remember the kind of rates. He was producing these records. It's phenomenal. Sure. I mean, I, I still hold up that run from the second Elton John record, the self-titled record in 1970, through to Blue Moves, which is a mere span of six years, which produced something like 10 classic studio albums, two of them doubles as one of the greatest consistent runs by any pop artist in history, perhaps only only matched by someone like the Beatles or, or David Bowie between a similar kind of period. It's an astonishing work rate, isn't it? And no wonder, no wonder there was fallout, I mean, a personal fallout for him in terms of his mm. addictions and the, the pressure and the stress getting to him. So many artists of that period do seem so committed to their art. So many bands from Thin Lizzy, Donna Summer, Genesis, Van de Graaff producing two studio albums in 76 and then as we said you know Wonder not only releasing this um, career best double but giving a seven inch alongside it yeah. you know and it's and McCartney's work rate was was phenomenal during this period as well I mean he had um, was it Speed of Sound out this year so Speed of Love Sound songs, is, which is yeah yeah T-Rex Futuristic Dragon yeah yeah he, he's kind of an artist that's disappeared into his own little bubble in a way but you know we were talking about you know artists like Magma and John Anderson being in a bubble I think Bolan by this point has kind of uh, you know, and lest we forget, three or four years earlier, he was the biggest artist in the UK. I mean, he was massive. Ma- and but even three, even just three or four years later, he's kind of disappeared into his own little kind of netherworld. Um, but it's a very interesting record, Futuristic Dragon. I don't know if you're that familiar with it. It is, yeah. Well, I mean, I think I, I quite like the Bolan Funk era, actually. I think it's yeah. incredibly underrated. You know, mm. it's as ambitious and as dotty as his earlier work. And obviously... You know, luckily, I mean, partly I think it's because of his television program that he had on Granada TV, which I, I used to watch, you know, coming home from school, that he sort of rehabilitated himself because he would have 10CC and Bowie on alongside the damned. And in some ways, he kind of became a sort of, you know, even though he was probably about 29, an elderly figurehead for punk. You know, and the irony of this is that members of Wire and members of the Stranglers were probably older than Mark Bolan, you know. But, but that, that's that's interesting, isn't it? Because a lot of that you kind of touched on something there. A lot of these guys that were, were branded old farts by the music press, if not this year, certainly by the following year. Some of them were still in their mid-twenties. I mean, that's just bizarre, isn't it? And here we are at the age of... I mean, I still feel like an up-and-coming artist. and I'm 52, you know. But um, yeah, yeah. It, it's extraordinary, isn't it? And and there's something a little bit tragic about it in some respects. In some careers, you look at some careers and you think, OK, well, this band uh, or this artist, the career was kind of, in terms of the, the, the great creative peak, was kind of over, wasn't it, by the time they hit 30? But, but what was interesting is which artists were kind of saved from that. So Bowie was saved from it. Ferry was saved from it. But, you know, yeah, Mike Oldfield. I mean, he was 
How old is he still? Probably early 20s at this stage, wasn't he? In 1976, he didn't actually make a record, but he's only 23 or 24. No. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. you know, this is somebody who's been completely dismissed as as antique. And you're right, you know, Boland, Oldfield, Eddie Jobson, who I think was younger again. Um, so last thing, Tim, I want to talk about, th- there's a few There's a few on our list here that we've, we've kind of put in the category, or I've put in the category of outliers in the sense that I didn't really, I didn't really know where to put them. They're almost... Um, you know, albums that exist outside of genre in the best possible way. The first Penguin Cafe Orchestra uh, comes from this year. Now, how, I don't know how you categorise an album like music from the Penguin Cafe. It seems to come from everywhere and nowhere at the same time, doesn't it? It mm. seems to come from a tradition, uh, you know, almost orchestral chamber music, but it's got the playfulness of, of you know, art rock. And how would you describe Penguin Cafe Orchestra to someone that had never heard them, Tim? Difficult. I suppose um, playful, chamber classical, but that doesn't remotely no, it uh, doesn't, touch doesn't. on the folk elements that are in the band. There's, there's a whimsical quality, but there's also a melancholy quality. And the first album might be my favourite, actually. I think it's certainly the most unfettered. Um, they continue to produce good albums throughout the 80s. There's a timelessness about their music. But, but yeah, I mean, I think, you're, but also Penguin Cafe Orchestra, you have pop. I mean, they're a pop band. You think of songs like Music for a Found Harmonium. Sure. Uh, and the song with the, the rubber, telephone and rubber band. I mean, these are, these are tracks that people may know because they've been used so many times in TV and, and cinema. Um, there's, a, there's definitely a pop sensibility in the same way that we talked about Jean-Michel Jarre having a pop sensibility. It's almost like taking chamber classical music to the mainstream, isn't it? The pop mainstream. Well, they're always on the edge of being too twee, yeah. but they just about avoid it. Yeah. And that's one of the, the beauties of it, that there's something in the sound, there's a kind of organic grain in the sound of the band mm. that doesn't make it sound cheap. And I suppose that's one of their, their skills, really, to sort of bring some quite experimental, you know, even systems music or minimalist music ideas to the mainstream. So there's also Can making an album called Flow Motion, which is I think of as kind of their reggae album. But the album I want to talk about from the Outliers category, which is a record that I think is possibly the most obscure record on this entire list. Uh, and I adore this record. Um, and it's, again, it's very hard to categorise, although it has a lot in common with music from the Penguin Cafe in the sense that Simon Jeffs is, is contributing to this record. And this album is an album by, made by a guy called John G. Perry called Sunset Wading. Now, if you've never heard of this record, don't feel bad because most people haven't. Um, John G. Perry was a bass player. He played bass in Caravan earlier in the decade. And somehow he got this record deal with Decca Records at the time to make this beautiful tone poem. I, I don't know how else to describe it, really. It's, it's pre- predominantly instrumental. It's a love letter to a part of the U- United Kingdom called the Lake District, a very bucolic album in that sense. And it has... An incredible lineup. It has people like Roger Glover from Deep Purple playing synthesizer on it. It's Michael ja- Michael Giles from King Crimson playing drums. Um, has Simon Jeffs from Penguin Cafe Orchestra, as I mentioned. And it's produced by Rupert Hine, who famously would go on to become a very big producer in, in the 80s with artists like Howard Jones and Rush. Um, and they're basically, they basically, with this record, they just made as I say, this beautiful kind of tone poem, a love letter to the countryside. And it has a very acoustic quality to it, but it's not folk. Um, it's not classical music. It's definitely rock music, isn't it? I suppose it still has the DNA in a way of something like Caravan, this very charming mm. kind of progressive aspect to it. But it really is 
something out on its own, isn't it, Tim? How, how would you describe yeah. it? Well, I think, you know, the word bucolic comes to mind with this. And, and I always kind of see it in relationship between two things, really. One, um, what Mike Oldfield was doing on things like Hergist Ridge. Yes. I kind of yeah. hear in yeah, this, def- this definitely, yeah. a sort of beautiful thematically linked quality. I and mean, the sounds of it remind mm. me of Oldfield. And then an album I know we both love, uh, Virginia Astley's From Gardens mm. Where We Feel Secure mm. in the early 80s, which, of course, again, is another sort of instrumental homage to the English countryside or mm. a day in the English countryside. Mm. And it's got a similar feel because doesn't this also have field recordings as well? It has field recordings and, and also yeah. has in common with the Virginia Astley. It has a sense of things unfolding in real time. So like the, yeah. the first half of the second side, you, you're kind of going on a ramble through the countryside. You hear the sound of the farmer saying good morning. So <laughs> it, and you hear the sort of sound of rivers and streams as, as, the, as the walker passes. In that respect, there is a similar feel despite the music being quite different. But what's interesting is that obviously Oldfield, you know, partly perhaps because of the success of Tubular Bells, um, Hergis Ridge did fantastically well. But this is a very quiet record. And, you know, it's crucial, isn't it? It's 1976. It's Decca Records. It could not have been commissioned in the next two years, three years, four years, perhaps ever again. This Mm. is the last year that an album like this could be made. Mm. And while we were saying at the beginning of the show, you know, Renaissance and Jeff Wayne had huge hits with progressive follies in 1978. The one thing that they had that this doesn't have, to a certain extent, is grandeur. You know, even the Andrew Lloyd Webber Coliseum 2 variations, it's quite manic, it's quite grand, whereas this unfolds really gently. It's a very quiet album, and perhaps Mm. that went against its profile at the time penguin cafe orchestra although there's an element in some of the playing i think it's the, the the epic on that has almost a sense that actually these guys know who lou reed is mm. but there's no rock on that album mm. really there's no, no rock on the penguin cafe orchestra and perhaps it's one of the reasons why you know they became beloved of um world music fans folk music fans classical music fans as much as pop fans and i guess this album was that little bit too much rock to have crossed over in the way that Penguin Cafe Orchestra did? I don't know. I mean, it's- I think I think there's a lot to do also with the label. A Decca couldn't have been un- more uncool in 1976 if they tried. This is not a cool <laughs> label to be on, you know. Uh, whereas I think, correct me if I'm wrong, Penguin Cafe were on EG, weren't they? Uh, but it, it's interesting because I think the one thing um, it does have in common with, with, say, the John Anderson album, and you kind of touched on this, is that it's very hard to believe that these people were even aware of what was going on. Uh, it sounds like they're completely in their little bubble. I, I can't imagine John G. Perry and Rupert sitting down of an evening and, and listening to the Ramones debut album. Uh, probably more likely they would have put on The Lark Ascending by Vaughan Williams or something like that. Do you know what I mean? It's, it sounds like it's completely of another time. But in a sense, that's also made it a very timeless record. It doesn't date. It still sounds gorgeous. A little story. Um, I introduced this album to, to Michael from Opeth, my friend Michael from Opeth. Um, and on their last record, right until 
until the last minute. Michael always has no titles for any of his songs. Um, and one of the tracks on their last record, which has the Latin title, which I can't remember, but um, right until the last minute when he sent me the finished album before he titled the songs was still called John G. Perry um, <laughs> because it had basically been very influenced by a song on this record. So he was very much, he very much fell under the spell of this record too. And I think it is a record that, that kind of weaves its spell on people. If you get it, if you get it, it really is a magical experience. It is, and I think in the way that the Virginia Astley album did, it is one of those albums that people who don't know this exists, the listener, they are beguiled by it. It sounds like this was the last year an album like that could have been made, could have been released on a major label. There is actually the exception that proves the rule to your theory, Tim, that this is the last year that something like this could get commissioned. 1977, Decca commissioned mm-hmm. The Fairy Symphony from Tom Newman. I'll leave it there. <laughs> You're right. Yeah. I'll leave it there. <laughs> okay. Well, also, when, sorry, I was going to say, when was the, whatever, the Pentateuch of the Cosmogogy? Oh, that's another thing. I think, uh, do you know what? I think that might even be the year after that, 1978. Yeah. So there you go. So there are exceptions that prove the rule. But I, I think your point broadly is, is obviously true and, and well taken. Yeah. <laughs> So, um, Tim, okay, so this is what we need to do at this point is we need to pick our favourite album of the year or favourite albums of the year, as we always do, and also the album that we think points most to the future, what what music is going to become. So arguably the most influential record from this year in the longer term. So what would be your first of your favourite albums from this year? I mean, this is, again, almost impossible to choose. I mean, I've got to choose Hegira as my favourite because it, is certainly my equal favourite Joni Mitchell album, possibly my favourite artist of all time. In terms of sort of um, what hit me emotionally, probably at the time it would have been How Dare You, 10CC, which I still think is a great album. Mm. And um, A Trick of the Tale by Genesis, actually. I find an incredibly beautiful new beginning for the band. They sound very confident for a band that, in effect, have had the stuffing knocked out of them and the focal point taken away. They produce this beautifully compelling album what would you unless you want to pick something else i was going to say would now would you pick your most influential record i'm going to say something which you might agree with which is jean-michel jarre's um oxygen in that it anticipates the electro pop of the late 70s early 80s it anticipates chill out and aspects of its sound can still be heard in soundtrack music and even the odd hip-hop production that would also be my my choice for most long-term influential my favorites yeah it's again i think like you it, it's tough not to not to include hijira uh my favorite Joni mitchell am one of my favorite artists presence i love presence abba's arrival i just think is a is a masterwork um elton's blue moves album there's so many great choices and as we kind of touched on there's so many different genres here that seem to be peaking in a sense. So many artists from different areas are kind of peaking at this point. Yeah, uh, Curone is an album that we didn't mention. John Greaves' album, which is fantastic from this period. And, and you know, the big mainstream hit of this year, Hotel California, it's actually very ambitious mm. in parts. And the title track is certainly one of the best Eagles pieces. And that, I suppose, a bit like Everybody Loves the Sunshine, has a sense of disillusionment, a sense that perhaps the party isn't, what it was cracked up to be and that the excess is reaching a conclusion. So maybe you can hear the seeds of punk in things like Hotel California as excessive and opulent and lovely as it is. And, you know, that 
never-ending guitar solo, there's a sense that they're aware of their own obsolescence and excess. Nothing wrong with a never-ending guitar solo, as long as it's a good never-ending guitar solo, of course. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. Okay, great, Tim. Well, we'll wrap up there. Uh, that, that was uh, very interesting. We crammed an, an awful lot of records into that episode. I think something like 70 or 80 records got a name check there, <laughs> which, which is testament to, to what, a, what a great you know, year it was in, in pop and rock music. Um, we've had this problem with a number of years, and, and this is another one. Um, just one more thing I want to say before we, we, uh, before we sign off is if you have enjoyed the podcast, you've enjoyed this podcast or any of the podcasts, please, please, please do go and uh, give us a rating or leave a review on any of the platforms you've been listening on, particularly the Apple podcast platform because uh, a lot of these uh, platforms rely on feedback um, for their algorithms to do their work and to you know spread the word about the podcast uh, so all it remains to do is to say thank you very much for listening again and we'll see you next time thank you very much and goodbye from me and goodbye from me bye-bye <laughs>